voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be starting to look at Jack London's or Jack London's Klondike stories, a few more of his novels, and some of his short stories. Specifically, in this uh, volume of Jack London's work from the Library of America, we have The Call of the Wild, White Fang, The Sea Wolf. 12 stories from the Klondike and 13 other stories. So we got a lot to get get through. It's probably going to take around 10 episodes or so to get through that. We're looking at about 1,000 pages of text. So we're ex- I'm excited to get into the second half of this lengthy series on the works of Jack London. Uh, first, I'd just like to make a little announcement about the bumpers. Um, I'm just changing the way I'm doing it. It turns out it takes a lot of time to choose uh ones and uh to choose you know specific music for each episode and i do a lot of these episodes especially with the philip k dick uh podcast that was actually more time consuming in that regard so what i'm going to do is find one piece of music and try to stick to period pieces that you know suggest uh some of the themes of of the work if i can if i can i'll just stick to a period piece that that just sort of sounds right to me um the piece that started this episode was uh, a french uh tune the song of the klondike which would you know was a a song about uh, french workers in the klondike gold rush so it's it's um it's fitting i think so anyways, uh, with that, we'll jump right into The Call of the Wild. So The Call of the Wild was written in 1903. It re- it refers a lot to or builds a lot of Jack London's experiences in the Klondike, which were in the 1890s. So there's some gap between that, but this is his first big you know, novel of the Klondike. And there's actually, it's this and White Fang are the two Klondike novels, both about animals. But he wrote all these stories too. Now, most people who, if they read just a little bit of Jack London, they're probably reading The Call of the Wild and To Build a Fire, right? Two of his stories of the Klondike. And many people think of Jack London as a writer who, you know, wrote about the Klondike. They don't necessarily know that he wrote science fiction, that he wrote The Iron Heel and The Scarlet Plague, and that, you know, he wrote about writing in Martin Eden or... You know, another novel we'll be looking at shortly, The Sea Wolf, which is about sealing and social Darwinism and violence and all kinds of interesting themes there. People know The Call of the Wild and they know to build a fire. I actually think that's not a horrible thing. You know, not everyone is going to read these works like I do and go obsessively, you know, line through line, text text by text through all of their work. Um, I own these Library of America books, so I try to get my money's worth of them. But... You know, most people aren't going to approach these writers that way, and that, that's fine. They, you get it in high school or maybe in a college literature class, and you just read a sampling of, of things. They're actually pretty representative of the themes that Jack London was, was interested in. So I think they're actually good text as, a, as an introduction to him, even if I, they're not my favorite of his. Um, now, Call of the Wild is probably the most well-known book about an animal. Uh, written from an animal's point of view. Now, of course, we can't humanize animals, or maybe humanize is the wrong term. We can't 
kind of anthropomorphize animals. We do this a lot. Like we we see an animal, maybe we want quote unquote grieving over a young. Maybe we see a lion in a documentary who's their young just died or something or starved to death, and we want to feel like oh she must be really sad or something. We're what we're doing there is we're projecting a human emotion, and and we know emotions evolved, right? Darwin even wrote a whole book about this. You know this. I think it was one of his last books. It was written after The Descent of Man, where he talks about emotions as a product of evolution. And we are a social species, so our emotions are a product of, of our social needs and our evolutionary needs. And, you know, to project this stuff on animals is, is not entirely right. Jack London was not a animal behaviorist. He didn't know an animals think, thought, or feel. Um, certainly they have feelings they have senses well, but it's really hard to guess what they might be or how they experience family um, wolves for instance do are monogamous uh, they care for their young in many ways they're they're kind of like humans they live in packs they live in groups that extend beyond the, the the nuclear family in many ways wolves have a lot in common with us it's, it's a little odd that humans have been so destructive to wolves given that they're socially quite similar to us but or maybe that's the reason but what I'm trying to say is you know, we can't assume they're like us. And in, in these novels, especially in White Fang and Call of the Wild, Jack London spends, a, you know, a lot of his time trying to get into the head of an animal. And he spent time with these animals. So maybe it's, he's not off the wall in some of his ideas, but I don't think we should look at these strictly as books about animals. I, I think both of these are books about violence and our world. I mean, these two books, White Fang and Call of the Wild, they're about our world. So um, let me try to jump into this, some of my thoughts about this. I, I don't think I'm going to go chapter by chapter. It's a very, very short novel. It's actually less than 100 pages. I think it's in the Library of America version, it's like 80 pages. And you can pretty much read this in, in one sitting, probably two or three hours, depending on how fast you read. I found an audiobook version, a uh, LibriVox recording, which was well done with a group of young readers. Going, um, well, it sounded young anyways. Maybe it was a college project or for, for actors. But I think that whole thing took only like three hours um, to do. So it doesn't take long to read, and you can kind of read it in one sitting. It's a, a book a lot of kids read because it is the content is, is, is good for, for kids. And it, you know, a lot of kids like animals, so it, it, it is a good book for them. It's kind of the one Jack London book that, that people read as a young age, actually has a happy ending sort of which is pretty rare for Jack London's stories as well um, well okay what do I want to say about this um, so Buck spends much of the novel essentially as an exploited worker all except the last chapter he's in some way being exploited and he's exploited for his labor and when I say this novel is not about animals it's actually or not really about nature it's about our world I think this kind of bears that out. For most of this novel, Buck, our main character, is an exploited member of the working class under capitalism. Right? Now, again, we don't want to anthropomorphize him and make him a full part of the working class, but he's, he's, he's there for his labor. And he's useful to people for his labor. And that's pretty much the extent of it. And when he works, he gets rewarded. When he doesn't work, uh, he's punished. He has good managers and bad managers. 
good bosses and bad bosses, just like all we, he has incompetent bosses. Just like any of us who've had a regular working life, we've experienced bad bosses and, and good bosses and benevolent bosses and cruel ones. Now, Buck's job here is to carry sleds of supplies across the Klondike. Now, like Martin Eden, he's not only a worker, but he seeks to dominate his arena. But through struggle and eventual success, the great battle he has at the center part of the novel, the centerpiece of the novel in a lot of ways, his battle with Spitz, the best he can become is the highest ranking servant. Right? He can become the, 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 top of, the top of the slave hierarchy. Many of the other sled dogs, not Buck, are killed. In fact, at one point, all but Buck die. So all the sled dogs he, he, he is with are killed or left for dead when they become exhausted. Uh, many are just abandoned on the way. And a common theme throughout a lot of these Klondike stories of, of Jack London is this, you know, when are we going to eat the dogs? And many of the stories have the same theme, like we're starving, eventually we eat the dogs, right? Or and even in White Fang, the dogs are the first thing that the wolves go after when they're starving. So they're expendable. When they're too exhausted to continue in the work, they're left behind or eaten or killed. Individualism fails for Buck, right? He doesn't, that's not a way out for him. He tries this. He tries to be the strongest worker, the best worker. Um, he tries to be the, the, the strongest of the pack, but that doesn't really work for him in the end. In the end, he has to find a community. He has to find true solidarity, first with Thornton and then with the wolves, right? Being going into the wild. None of Buck's struggles for domination, none of his assertive resistance can defeat the law of club and fang. This is a term, I think I've referenced it before, but I think I said it wrong in earlier podcasts because I'm going from memory. But yeah, it's the law of club and fang. The fang, the violence of nature, the club, the violence of civilization. Right? And it's a bit of both. And that, so that's what we have to kind of work out as we read The Call of the Wild. To what degree is this an about civilization and its violence and its, and its cruelties? And to what degree is it about nature and kind of the human nature? Right? Because social Darwinism kind of to the person who maybe just knows a little bit about it, they'll say, well, social Darwinism is the application of nature's laws to our societies. Right? That it's just like nature's cruel and horrible and brutal and we're left for dead. There's no mercy there. And that's pretty much how society is too. Right? But I'm not sure that's what Jack London is saying here. I think he's saying that nature is better. And actually, civilization is worse. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Civilization is worse than nature. Nature's horrible, but civilization is worse. Now, Martin Eden finds salvation in suicide. Buck finds salvation in returning to kind of this primitive equality by joining the wolf pack, going back to the wild. And prior, prior to that, he finds... A solidarity finds a companionship with this character Thornton, but Thornton is killed by Indians. So civilization again breaks up and disrupts his idyllic life. So we see the fragility of this happiness in 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 Buck. I mean, it's really there at the beginning pages where you have this happy description of Buck's life. You know, basically living with rich people, cared for by rich people, and then he's sold off. He has that again with Thornton, but pretty much throughout the rest, it's misery. So this, this happiness is very fragile, and he only finds it by completely withdrawing from society. He opts out. The same way Martin Eden was searching for a way to opt out, searching for uh, 
new friends, a new community, trying to rise up in the middle class. He does all these ways. And someone says you should go hoboing. Maybe that's closest to the path that that Buck takes, going a hoboing, but he, he does it in the dog way. So at some in some level, this is what I want to propose for the Call of the Wild. That it's a story about civilization, br the brutality of the culture we live in, and essentially that's capitalistic, and the way out, which is some degree of solidarity with, with some other figures. Right? It may not be total social equality. I mean, Thornton and Buck are not equals. But he talks about other things too, the necessity of competent leadership, the necessity of, of I mean, the importance of not being cruel to those under us in a hierarchy. Or just maybe he's saying it's inevitable that hierarchies will be somewhat violent. And Thornton is just kind of almost a, a figment of, or the exception that proves the rule, I mean. Now, when I last read London, this is actually the third time I probably approached these texts by Jack London. You know, I, I used to have more ambivalence about this. Individualism and, and community. I mean, I mean, used to, I used to basically see this as a book about radical individualism, right? Buck rejects the human world to be this great individual, right? Because after all the series of brutal things that happened to him, he just goes off on his own. But he doesn't really go off on his own, right? He's, he's forming a new community. The harsh brutality of the capitalist machine that Buck was drawn into is the cornerstone of this novel. He lives in it to a degree in California, but he's not aware of it. He's like the privileged member of of the underclass, essentially not aware of how bad things could be until he's sent to the Yukon. And he, right, pretty much from day one when he's sold, he's being treated in this brutal way. Like the East Enders and the people of the Abyss, or like the maritime workers London drank with and John Barleycorn, and like poor Martin Eden and Go back and listen to my episodes on these things if you want to know more about these, if you're just joining us. But like these people, Buck spends much of the novel facing exploitation and hunger and suffering. Brutal, brutal suffering, day in and day out. As an animal, Buck is subjected to even worse torture and brutalization and indifference. You know, we're, however bad we are to other human beings in our indifference, we're worse to animals. Right? I'm, I'm actually not a real animal lover. I don't eat meat, though. I'm, I'm a vegetarian. But it's it's not because I love animals, necessarily. It's just, the you know, sometimes I when I think about it, I have a hard time facing just how cruel we are. I don't think being a vegetarian solves that much. You know, the market for meat is what it is. It's just something that I, 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 I don't want to be complicit in if I can choose to not be. And certainly, it brings out the worst of us, the way we treat animals often. You know, I think the way we treat children, too, is not much better often. Um, and we see this in the euphemisms we use. You, you can rape an adult, but we molest children. Right? You assault an adult, but you just discipline or spank a child. I mean, if the stuff, we, we have all these euphemisms for the cruel things we do to children. Now, in Buck's case, we have the owners mocking him, starving him, smashing him with clubs, murdering his companions at will, and encouraging violence and relishing in the violence among the sled dogs. Now, just take any crisis in the capitalist 
well, I don't want to say crisis because this is run-of-the-mill stuff, but take any disaster, any tragedy produced out of capitalist production, a fire in a textile mill, the Triangle Fire, for instance, or take an explosion in a coal mine that kills 100 people in China. These cases show us that workers around the world today are often seen as less than human and are routinely allowed to die for, 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 for profit. So let's not delude ourselves. We are buck, except for maybe some slight protections governments feel fit to bestow on us if we're lucky. Much of the world isn't that lucky. But for genetic luck, and maybe some of you aren't that, you know, don't have this luck, um, but we would be one of billions of people in, you know, probably who are worse off than those listening. I mean, I, you know. And certainly, we're lucky that we're not one of the billions of animals tortured, raped, forced to breed, murdered, dissembled, and eaten, or worn, or simply discarded around the world. The plot is well known and fairly straightforward. Buck is owned by a fairly nice family, uh, but there's a gambler and a drunkard in there who needs some money to in that family. I think it's a servant, Manuel, I think his name is. Uh, and hopefully we'll get to build, talk about Jack London's racial stereotypes at a time. It's They're not unproblematic, but here we have a, a, a Mexican-American uh, who sells off Buck to get some money to pay off some debts. The Yukon Gold Rush created a massive continent-wide market for dogs, and all dogs in America were for sale from that time on. I mean, you needed dogs to travel in the Yukon. It simply wasn't possible to to travel without dogs. Um, there, you didn't have roads and railroads and and those kinds of things, and and horses couldn't make it in that environment. Dogs were relatively cheap to feed and maintain, and they could carry these sl these sleds. So after he's sold off, he's disciplined into submission with the law of the club. Then Buck joins a sled team. Buck rises to dominance within the sled team by defeating Spitz, the head dog, the leader of the team, in a battle to the death. And in the process, he learns the law of the fang, the brutality of nature, the struggle for survival and dominance. In fact, though, that's a bit of a deflection because this struggle is a product of of a competition for dominance created by the needs of the capitalist enterprise that Buck is part of. After a brutal mail run, Buck and his team were hungry and worn out. Some had died or been killed. Unable to make the return trip, this team is sold to some na naive newcomers who seem good-hearted but end up misusing the dogs. And when frustration brought on by their ill-planning and inexperience overwhelms them, uh, they 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 basically can't feed the dogs anymore and, the, and there starts to be starvation among the animals and you know it's not even clear how these people are going to get back they just don't know what they're doing they're, and I think Jack London he does it in other stories too he talks about these people who are in over their heads coming to the Yukon they think they can get rich quick and come back down but they're not nearly prepared enough these people die as an ice sheet collapses under them killing the entire team now fortunately Buck was was rescued prior to this by John Thornton John Thornton is the one human who sees beyond Buck's material utility and sees him as a great dog, someone of value beyond his, his needs. So he doesn't put him to work. Buck becomes more wild as he fights to defend Thornton from an Indian attack, and he eventually slaughters a group of Indians 
in a sense he, he finds peace for a short period but when that's disrupted he becomes a vengeful beast and it's at this time that Buck begins fraternizing with the wolves and when Thornton died Buck joins the wolf pack and the last lines of this the story seem to suggest that Buck still when he can gets revenge against the Indians who who killed his his um, master Thornton the humans in this book are pretty much all odious they're sim um, they're cynical they're iron-hearted capitalists um, in many ways they symbolize that these people are willing to discard and kill and exploit for a profit Charles Hal and Mercedes these are the three greenhorns these are the people who come not knowing what they're into and they're more complex they lack the experience to manage the team they're you know so they're in some ways almost worse they overfeed the team uh, and then later on are forced to starve them when the food runs out they can't even manage the food supply much less know how to get gold or make money up in the Yukon and of course most people who went to the Yukon were utter failures a handful of people got rich as in any gold rush but most people you know, barely made enough to survive and in this case it was life or death unlike the California gold rush where you know you're less likely to end up dead in the frozen tundra now despite their good intentions and comparable warm-heartedness when things get hard for them the abuse of animals among the greenhorns increase quote in excess of their own misery they were callous to the suffering of the animals Hal's theory, which he practices on others, was that one must get hardened, end quote. So the suggestion here is that the violence that comes out of the greenhorns, you know, it's similar to the violence of the cynical, experienced leaders. It's just, it kind of comes from a different place. It, at the end of the day, the club is the club, right? Whether you're getting overused and misused and beaten or mistreated or underpaid or whatever because you're Andrew just doesn't know what he's doing or it's because it's just a cynical plan to make money in the end you're you know your life is miserable and again we've had bosses like this we've all had bosses that we realize shouldn't be there right the Peters principle is a real thing if you don't know this the Peters principle is this idea in management theory that everyone is promoted essentially to the place they're not they're incompetent in right if you're good at your job you get promoted if you're bad at your job you're stuck there Maybe you get demoted, but usually you get stuck there. So we tend to promote people to positions of authority who were really good at their previous job, but are bad at the job they're in and because they get stuck. If they're good at the job they're in, they'll get moved up out of that. So I guess a suggestion that maybe we should work harder to find where people are best fit. Um, but, you know, we've had this. And if you, if you haven't had a job like that, you've seen depictions of these incompetent bosses in, in film or in office space or um, what's that TV show? just the office these are about that the incompetent boss is a cultural um, motif in the United States now London is clear that in practice the suffering of the team was worse under the inexperienced than it was under the professional exploiters with these characters we have perhaps the liberals they want to do good they're softer and less cynical but their good intentions causes much harm at the self-aware exploiters they mismanage resources and weep over their crimes as well as their own suffering. We're actually surrounded by people like Hawk, Charles, Hall, and Mercedes. These are the people who might consume organic crops harvested by exploited immigrant workers. 
These are the people who sponsor children in quote-unquote developing countries, but own clothes owned by slaves. These are the people who proudly eat at Chipotle for its locally grown vegetables, but indifferent to the suffering of the animals and workers in the slaughterhouses. Or the low pay and scientifically managed regulation of the workers behind the counter. These are the liberal voters who looked the other way when Obama ignored his pledge to shut down Guantanamo Bay or continued the process of destroying American unions or expanded drone strikes or continued 40 years of stagnant wages. Now, John Thornton sees through them right away. John Thornton saw them for what they are, and that's one reason he tried to save, save Buck. Now, John Thornton is there to make money, but he's the only one who seems to manage this without exploiting others. Contrasted with the other characters, Thornton is, in many ways, the anarchist. He works to liberate Buck. Buck and Thornton work together and protect each other. They have, a, they have a solidarity in a community. But rather than rehabilitating humanity, this has the result of bringing Buck closer to the wild, to nature. Their relationship is more natural. And it's under Thornton that Buck has the freedom to encounter the wolf pack that will eventually lead to his full liberation. So, who is Thornton for us? Well, I think for London, Thornton perhaps is the socialist. He's the Ernst Everhart kind of figure. We can read him differently, of course, but in any case, he merge, emerges as the authentic liberator. He's the one who frees Buck from death. And it's like literally he frees him. He takes Buck into his home, and then like they actually can see the sled. Because he says, don't go on that ice. It's going to, it's not strong enough. And they say, no, we got to go, you know, get to the fort. I think they're looking for a fort or a city or something. And so they go there, and he says, no, you got to go around it. And they go anyways, and they all, they all die. So at the last moment, Thornton saves him. It's nice to imagine, though, that through self-will, self-direction, hard work, we can free ourselves from dependency or slavery. The problem is that's what Buck had been doing throughout the novel. He had never stopped trying to improve his life. <clears throat> that's why he fights Spitz. He, he thinks defeating Spitz, becoming head of the, the team, will be liberation for him. It's not. It's not. So where is our Thornton going to be? He's not going to be waiting for us at a prospecting camp. Now, Jack London in Call of the Wild stresses the social Darwinian forces affecting all life. Many of these are, in fact, quite indifferent to human beings and, animal, and animals alike. But they're products of society. Social Darwinism... You know, we, we should focus less on the Darwin part of the term when we want to talk about it and to focus more on the social part. And, you know, I don't think society has to be or is inevitably a dog-eat-dog -dog world, but I do think there are historical moments and relationships and situations in which it is the brutal reality. So I'm, I'm kind of becoming warmer and warmer to Jack London's feelings on social Darwinism as I've been rereading his, his work now for the third time. Now, another theme in this novel that we need to pay attention to is honor and service and hierarchy. Buck begins the novel as a willing servant of, of his masters, even his master-servant Manuel, who sells him. And there's a scene that some of you may remember. Um, and here's, how, here's what London writes. Quote, Buck had accepted the rope with quiet dignity. To be sure, it was an unwanted performance, but he had learned to trust in men he knew and to give them credit for a wisdom they out, that outreached his own. 
But when the ends of the rope were placed on the stranger's hand, he growled menacingly. He had merely intimidated, intimated his displeasure, but his pride believing that to intimidate was to command, or to intimate was to command. But to his surprise, the rope tightened around his neck, shutting off his breath. Yes, he becomes violent and aggressive at the end when he realizes he's being mistreated, but that opening moment where he accepts the rope around his neck because he thinks, of course, why wouldn't I trust humans, the masters? And then when in custody, he begins to be abused and resist, but he smashed through force. The law of club and fang becomes real to him. He refuses to accept the leadership of Spitz because of his cruelty, and he rejects the leadership of the Greenhorns because they fail to show their knowledge. The ideal leader, therefore, is thus just, caring, trustworthy, and knowledgeable. Now, how many of us can say this about our own bosses? Leadership, however, is inevitable in the brutal world of men. When talking about the upcoming conflict with Spitz, uh, Jack Linden writes, it was inevitable that the clash for leadership should come. Buck wanted it. He wanted it because it was his nature, because he had been gripped tight by that nameless, incomprehensible pride of the trail and trace, that pride which holds dogs in the toil to the last gasp, which lures them to die joyously in the harness and breaks their heart if they're cut out of the harness. This was the pride of Dave as a wheel dog, of Solex as he pulled with all his strength, the pride that laid hold of them at break of camp, transforming them from sour and sullen beasts into straining, eager, ambitious creatures. End quote. Now, this is a really fascinating passage here because civilization and exploitation are all confused with nature. The passage begins, he says, this was his nature. And he talks about this nameless, incomprehensible pride of the trail and trace. It seems it's talking about this is like the pull of nature. But when you get to actual specific examples of, of this in practice, it's animals trying to be proud of the work they perform for humans as servants. Right? And I think we're all very confused about, you know, where our suffering comes from. We think suffering is natural, perhaps. Or we think, you know, this is just the pain of living. We think, you know, misery is going to come because that's life. That's, you know, people will say this, right? That's life. Accept it. When what we're rebelling against or we're frustrated about is things that come out of civilization, not life. Their institutions, social structures, relationships that we cultivate and sustain. So is this the law of nature? And I, I think it's actually wrong to call The Call of the Wild a book about nature. It's actually about civilization. All the brutality, all the indifference, all the conflict, all the tragedy in the story is from civilization and more specifically a capitalist system willing to use the lives of men and animals alike for profit. The most rich relationships described in this novel are those that are rooted in nature, such as that between Thornton and Buck. Quote, um, where is I'm looking for the quote on here. This is how John Thornton is described. John Thornton asked little of man or nature. He was unafraid of the wild. With a handful of salt and a rifle, he could plunge into the wilderness and fare whenever he pleased, as long as he pleased. Being in no haste, Indian fashion, he hunted his dinner in the course of a day's travel. And if he failed to find it, like the Indians, he kept on traveling, securing the knowledge that sooner or later he would come to it. So on this great journey into the east, straight meat 
was the bill of fare. Ammunition and tools principally made up for the load of his sled, and the time card was upon the limitless future. To Buck, it was boundless delight, this hunting, fishing, and undefinite wandering through strange places. On and on. We're reminded again and again that it's nature that's happier, more egalitarian, better. And so we almost got like a Rousseauian point of view perhaps here. Now, it is civilization, in the case of these attacking Indians, that forced Buck back into his civilized barbarism. So what I'm trying to say here is that the line between barbarism and civilization is all confused in this story. In a way, the Joker in The Dark Knight had it right. The society we live in is the horrific one, but it's just painted over with this, with the kind of an idea that, you know, as long as violence is properly ordered. I talk about this in my Philip K. Dick series in the story, The Hanged, Stra Hanging Stranger. There's a line in there where the, the guy talks to the police and kind of says, well, because he goes into a town and he sees this guy hanging from the lamppost or something. And he, he asked, like, is this normal? Is this right? Is everything on the up and up? And the, the police are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how often do we look the other way at horrific realities? Famine, starvation, homelessness, foreclosures, people being kicked out of their jobs, whatever. How often do we look at that and say, it's fine because all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. You know, the forms were filled out, right? Who, what, what can I say? Yeah, we... Or my bank kicked someone out of their home, and now they're homeless. But you know, they had the right. Then we had the right forms. We did everything properly through the courts, right? This is what I mean by civilized barbarism. Nature has its laws and tragedy, to be sure. In the passage I just read, we see Thornton having to hunt to eat. So nature has this law, and it it come, we see it again in White Fang. Yeah, there is brutality in nature. But it also has its solidarities. Is this the true meaning of social Darwinism? It is not the nature, it's not that nature has a struggle for survival that is applied to society. It's that society makes new sets of laws that are often worse than those of nature. Now the final passage of the novel reminds us that the violence, vengeance, and hate of Buck is never gone. The Indians, the Elots, are then preyed upon Buck at the end. So well, how do, I don't quite know what to make of this because we want to have a happy ending where Buck lives happily in the wild away from the brutal civilization. But we get this passage. The Elots tell us of a ghost dog that runs at the head of the pack. They are afraid of this ghost dog for it has cunning greater than they, stealing from their camps in fierce winter, robbing their traps, slaying their dogs, and defying their bravest hunters. Nay, the tale grows worse. Hunters there they are who have failed to return to the camp, and hunters there have been who their tribesmen found with throats slashed cruelly open, and the wolf prints about them in the snow greater than the prints of any wolf. Each fall when the Ehats follow the movement of the moose, there's a certain valley they never enter, and women who become sad when they when the word goes over the fire of how evil spirit came to select that valley for its abiding place. Alright, so this vengeance remains part of, of Buck's life. Perhaps unfortunately, perhaps that's a sour, bittersweet ending to the novel. Okay, so that's my comments on, on Call of the Wild. I actually thought I would have a bit less to say. I was surprised when I was going through my my notes on this that I had so little to say about it, but I guess I ended up with a long episode after all. So even when I try to be brief, I can't always do it well. Um, 
but this does leave us with the part of each episode or each when I close a novel. I, I like to go back over the themes. Usually I do this in the last episode of a series about a book, but since Call of the Wild is less than 100 pages, we're only going to have one episode on it. So um, this will be short. I just picked six themes. There are certainly more. Uh, we could probably do this all day, but I just picked a handful. And as always, I, uh, the reason I'm doing this is to kind of begin to create an index of American literature. It's not something I'm ever going to compile, really, but I do like to, when I finish a novel, to think about what are its themes and how does it perhaps relate to other books. And, you know, it's it's kind of part of the fun of literature for me. So, you know, bear with me. Um, please do contact me, though, if you think there are big, important themes that I'm missing and you'd like to see addressed. Uh, the big one here is, of course, nature. It's called Call the Wild. So nature is a theme. What is the nature of nature? What is life like in nature? And Jack London explores this by going to a frontier that was still very frontierish. Um, and maybe the, the, we should add that as a seventh theme here, the frontier. So we'll kind of look at these together. Now, Frederick Jackson Turner talked about the frontier as this process of, of making, remaking America. Now, I don't know if Jack London read uh, Turner. I, I get the sense he maybe didn't read all that widely, um, especially not in scholarship. Um, but he certainly did read a lot of philosophy. I, I think he read that. I'm not sure how much history he read. That's, I guess, the question I'm, uh, the thing I'm trying to say. I'm not sure how much history he read and if he read Turner, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did. Uh, Turner was kind of hot at the time. His main point is that Americanism is made through this process of uh, this frontier recreation of individualism and democracy. But at the time that Jack was Jack London was writing, at the time that Turner was writing, the frontier was was quote unquote closing. Right? There was kind of no more wild places on the continent. So then the question is, where do we go for a frontier? And for some, it was the Pacific. And for some, it was the Yukon. The Yukon could become this new frontier, right? And we do want to think of Jack London as a frontier writer, don't we? He writes about California, but he has not that much. He writes a lot about the Pacific. He writes a lot about the seas. He writes a lot about um, about the Yukon and the Klondike Gold Rush, right? There's a lot of his short stories are actually about the Pacific Islands, which is what at the time sort of an American frontier. So. Uh, the frontier is a theme, but also nature. Just what is nature like? And that's why he uses an animal character kind of going to nature to see that. And, then, and I do think he, at the end of the day, he thinks nature is better than what we've created. I'm not saying at the end, you know, he would think civilization could not be better than nature. Certainly in the Iron Heel, you get the sense that we can create a better world. We just haven't done that. What we've created is, is garbage. So another theme is social Darwinism. Social Darwinism, you know, it's kind of there with all of Jack London's works. I just think we need to ask this question of how much is it nature being imposed on society or, or society kind of following nature's laws as much as it is society creating its own brutal logic that that maybe has hints of, of the brutality of nature but has its own logic and reasons and, you know. Like in nature, yeah, you kill to eat to survive. You know, in civilization, you you kill and exploit and mistreat for, you know, for riches. Right? And the White Fang, the novel we'll look at next, is incredibly violent. 
But the violence is always, at least among the animals, always there for survival. Right? We're starving or whatever. Next, gold mining. And I think gold mining more broadly can just be a metaphor for the seeking of money, the searching of money, and in that sense can feed into all kinds of things about industrialism and capitalism. Any, you, I mean, you can apply kind of this these arguments to almost any aspect of economic life in the Gilded Age. But we got specifically the gold mining, and which is, of course, the searching for gold. Next, we have race. Race is actually a big theme here. I didn't say too much about it in my formal comments, but you have Buck owned by people of different races at different times. He's, he's, his original owners were, were white, but the person who sold them was, seems a Mexican-American. He, for a while, he was owned by Indians. Um, then he was owned by Americans, and then finally by Thornton, who's an American. He has this relationship with the Indians. So there's a lot of different races involved here. And the Klondike, like all frontier places, was kind of racially mixed. So race is a, a theme here. Capitalism. This is really just an add-on to the gold mining thing, but um, capitalism and labor relations. Maybe that's really what I want to get at. Labor relations is an important theme in this book. And then finally, the Indian Wars. We are going to say more about Indian Wars when we look at like Francis Parkman and, and a few other writers who looked at it more explicitly. But this may be the first time in this series on American writers that I've actually seen any Indians. I, and I, I'm, I might be wrong. I mean, we saw Pacific Islanders in the Melville stuff. But I... You know, maybe one showed up at some point in one of Frank Norris's novels, but I don't remember. This might be the first time we're actually experiencing Native Americans. In this case, they're presented either as quite brutal owners of, of dogs, just ex any other exploiter, or as these, mur these kind of wild, barbarous murderers. So they're not the most flattering portrayals of, of Indians. So, But this violence between whites and Indians which was kind of ending at during Jack London's lifetime in the West, you know, got kind of a new phase in its history in, in the North. And one of the, actually the major characters that Jack London creates in his Klondike stories, the uh, male moot kid, I believe is half Indian. Or at the very least, he's a frontier person, but I, I do think he, he has some Indian blood in him. So there's, there's going to be other chances we'll have to to think about how Indians are portrayed um, in in these novels. It comes up actually a lot in White Fang, especially the third part of White Fang is all about the relationship between the wolf packs and and the Native Americans. Well, that does it for the Call of the Wild. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and thank you for continuing with my series on Jack London. I've been having a lot of fun with it, although from time to time I've it's kind of been affecting me. I've been a bit depressed lately. Um, not not constantly, but from time to time I've gotten a bit gloomy uh, reading some of these tech texts. There's not that many happy stories. This is one of the few that ends sort of on a happy note. Anyways, if you've read Jack or if you read Jack London's Call of the Wild, uh, and you have your own comments or thoughts, if you have themes you'd like me to add and address, please let me know. Um, but, you know, if not, I'll be back shortly with, with White Fang. On 
Thank you so much for listening. Il y en avait un autre parmi eux qui a passé pour un quiqueux. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant pleine face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Klondike.